0: Our second scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Let us listen for the word of the Lord. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, and then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat, and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you have heard me share this simple story from my life. Seven years ago this very month, in October 2009, I sat in the office of my chaplain supervisor, David Hormanu, at Duke Hospital, I had graduated from seminary about six months earlier and was serving as a chaplain for the year in a program called Clinical Pastoral Education. It's a program that emphasizes a mixture of on-site clinical work, a lot group processing time, one-on-one supervision, and lots and lots of talking about your feelings. So I sat in David's office and was very nearly crying I was frustrated with myself, with my heart and my emotions. Nearly a year earlier, I had broken up with a long-time serious boyfriend. I had been the one to end it. I had chosen to end it. There were reoccurring issues of addiction on his side, and I had to face that There were enabling tendencies on mine. However, we still cared for each other, and as you you can imagine, breakups aren't always clean and easy. We nearly got back together about ten times. And after graduation, it was hard to say goodbye. And while I still felt comfortable with the ending of that relationship, I also still felt a push and pull of affection for him, for the hopes, my hopes for his well-being. And so nearly a year after our official breakup in October, when I found out my ex-boyfriend was seriously dating someone else, I sat in David's office, choking back tears. And I was angry at myself for feeling such emotions. After all, I was still glad that we had broken up. I felt relieved to be out of that relationship. I had moved away and gotten a job I loved. I felt healthier. I'd gone on one or two dates with other people. I'd even had this great, intriguing conversation with a tall, broad-shouldered North Carolina boy who attended a Presbyterian church, looked good in a suit, and liked to argue on Facebook. <laughs> there might, might be possibilities with that Michael Bacon guy. I had no logical reason to feel the grief that I felt over my ex. Nevertheless, my feelings weren't listening to all these perfectly reasonable, rational, logical arguments. I was sad, and not only was I sad, but I was also angry at myself for being sad. My supervisor listened to all of this, handling all my fervor with his characteristic good humor. And when, it, when I finished my litany of frustration at myself, David said in his lilting Ghanaian accent, Ah, Now you must put a stone on it. What do you mean, I asked. Put a stone on it, he repeated. You know, like Jacob, take a stone, put it down, and say, here is an important moment, and you can pray over it as long as you need, but then you have to get up and leave that stone behind and keep moving. (coughs) But, I asked, what if I feel all these emotions again? Shouldn't I be over it by now? I wanted him to tell me how to get over these feelings, how to be done with them once and for all. David shook his head. No, grief doesn't work like that. When you feel it again, put another stone down, stay there for as long as you need, pray over that spot, and then keep moving. I was starting to appreciate this idea and get into the metaphor of it, and so I asked, I suppose sometimes I might forget where I'm going and circle back around and trip over that same stone. And David started to giggle. And then he, all, he added and let out his trademark loud David Hormone, Hormonew laugh of glee. He said, and sometimes if you're not looking out, that pebble will jump up and smack you in the forehead. But you just have to let that stone stay there, pray over it, and then keep moving. I've cherished this conversation for years in many different contexts because, surprise, surprise, there have been other times when my emotions did not follow my logical, rational reasoning to myself. I've still had times when I've been annoyed with myself for being bothered by something. And I've also had moments of incredible joy and wonder and love that you didn't know what to do with. Instead of trying to capture and bottle up those different emotions forever, I've had to remind myself of David's words, echoing the actions of Jacob from this passage. Put a stone on it. Pour out something like precious oil on the spot. Pray over it. And then continue on the journey, knowing that you might need to pause again farther down the road and place another stone. Don't try to hoard or cling or stay in that one spot. Put a stone on it, and then keep moving. This is what Jacob practices in this moment of our scripture, in this moment when he hears God's promise to him. Jacob is alone in the wilderness. He has fled because he has tricked his brother out of their father's blessing and birthright, and now Esau, the hunter, the strong one, wants to kill Jacob. Jacob has fled his family, his tribe, his land. He has nothing. He has set forth into the wilderness trying to survive and figure out what his future might hold. God appears to him when Jacob is at his most vulnerable. He is asleep, a stone pulled to his side, perhaps in case he needed protection or to defend himself. He is asleep in this land he doesn't know well, away from any shelter. And God chooses this moment to appear to him. The text says that the Lord stood beside him or even over him in this dream. This is not some far-off God. This is a God who comes close to Jacob and speaks to him, calling him by name. And God gives Jacob a promise that might seem unlikely and unfeasible, after all, when Jacob awakes from his dream, st- he is still on his own. He is still a fugitive. He is still without a home or a tribe. And yet, he chooses to trust in God. He chooses to trust that this promise is actually for him. And so Jacob sets up a stone. He pours out oil, which is always a sign of something precious and expensive in Scripture. He prays over the spot, declaring, surely the Lord is in this place. And then he prepares to continue on his journey, to continue to walk deeper into an unknown future. It's worth noting that Jacob does not leave this scene with a clear answer or direction. He doesn't head back out into the wilderness with blazing signposts saying, this is the way to go. He leaves with only a promise that God will be with him, and he chooses to trust that promise. In a similar way, I didn't have one relationship end with clean closure and then a sign light up saying, check out this Michael guy. It was more complicated than that. Sometimes we have to place our stone and practice trusting in God's presence by continuing the journey, even without a clear-cut map, telling us what is coming next. Around the time I was sitting in David's office seven years ago, I was also reading a book titled Addiction and Grace. Addiction and Grace was written by Gerald May, an influential 20th century psychiatrist and spiritual counselor. May writes how all of us, if we are honest with ourselves, tend to cling to certain things to certain routines, to certain ways of thinking or of going through our days. May highlights how we can turn these small, harmless, familiar habits into addictions if we cling to them and sacrifice t- taking any risks of faith. These familiar habits become addictions when we let them get in the way of reaching out, reaching out for grace, trying new things, pushing ourselves into unfamiliar terrain. May points out that grace is never earned or logically understood. Grace is only truly appreciated when we experience it in real, immediate, tangible life situations. We cannot ever fully comprehend grace. We can only live into it. And so we must practice trust. We must practice taking a leap of faith and discovering how grace might catch us if we let go of our habits. This is tough. This is risky and scary and potentially very, very painful. But in May's view, before we ever learn to trust God, we must let go of our small, comfortable addictions and cast ourselves onto grace. Only then do we start to work out our muscles of trusting God. Only after we let go do we discover that, like a loving parent, the arms of God are reaching out to us. Jacob, before this story, had worked hard to claim his birthright and blessing. He had used a lot of wiles and guile. And in the meantime, he had angered his brother and disappointed his father. He had tried to cling at things and he had ended up fleeing his home. He finds himself in need of great grace. And it is at this moment when Jacob is his most vulnerable and despised when God meets him. Who knows? We cannot say for certain, but perhaps Jacob had to go into the wilderness before he could begin the long journey of learning to trust God And while my story isn't as treacherous or dramatic as Jacob's, I wonder if perhaps I had to go through the wilderness of my own messy breakup before I came out the other side, ready for a more stable, healthy relationship. Perhaps I had to leave behind the known land of this comfortable relationship to venture forth, to start to learn something more about addiction and enabling Perhaps I had to re-enter the terrifying world of dating in order to cast myself upon the grace of God and to live into the trust that God would show up even in this place, even in the awkwardness of a first date. And when I did feel the presence of God, I had to practice putting a stone on it, to pray over the moment, to mark it, and then to get up and to move on, trying to trust that God would go with me. I wonder if you have had a time when you had to leave behind the familiar to let go of a particularly comfortable perch on a particularly cozy branch. I wonder if you have had a time when you had to trust that if you let go of that branch, somehow, some way, someone would catch you. I wonder if you've ever had to let go of your presumptions or your preconceptions, your routines and habits and familiar faces. I wonder if you've ever had to live into the mystery of grace and try to trust that in the midst of all that is unknown, you are being held. You are loved. It is no accident that we get our principle of tithing from this passage. Tithing is one of those ancient church words that we use every week and sometimes we don't even think to explain what it might mean. It means a tenth and it comes from this promise of Jacob's that he will give a tenth back to God and so we talk about giving our tithes and offerings. The laws of Deuteronomy will elaborate more upon this but it is an idea that we are giving one tenth in response to the realization that God is with us even when we do not know it. We do not give in order to buy God's favor. We do not give in order to settle accounts for what God gives us. Giving to the work of God as we do each week, tithing, our offering, is always done as a response. It is why we give after we hear the scripture. It is a response to the fact that each of us are on a journey and while journeying in these unknown lands, we realize that no matter how unfamiliar the terrain, we aren't Alone. There is a Holy One who stands beside us, offering us hope and a future, reminding us who we are and whose we are, and so we give an offering in gratitude. We live in a world that asks us to hoard our possessions, to cling to the familiar, to not risk too much of our own skin. The world asks us to cultivate our small and subtle addictions in the name of being successful or efficient. However, there is a different way of living. There is a way of practicing letting go rather than hoarding. There is a way of casting ourselves upon grace rather than our own ability to raise money. There is a way to teach ourselves to trust in God's presence no matter where we might go, no matter how limited our understanding no matter how measly we feel about deserving God. This different way of living is why Christianity and Judaism and Islam all promote some form of almsgiving, some way of giving back what we have. That is why we talk about stewardship in this church. Making a pledge, giving an offering, is about more than money. It is about choosing to trust in something larger than our individual habits. It is about trusting in someone who is bigger than our individual selves. It is about pushing ourselves into unfamiliar places and learning lessons of grace and hope, discovering a future that is far more vast than we might have imagined. It is scary to make a pledge or drop a check into the plate, It is intimidating to show up to volunteer when you don't know anyone else there, or to stand with your child before the community and to make promises of faith. Each of these are scary things at times. But perhaps we can think of these small, individual, tangible acts as similar to putting down a real, tangible stone, reminding ourselves that this is important. This is precious, God is here even when I did not know it. None of us know what the future holds, and sometimes when we look ahead, our path is very much not clear, and it can be scary to trust that God will go with us. And yet, when we look back, if we have put stones down at these moments of trust and grace, perhaps we can glimpse a series of stones marking the path along the way, reminding us that we have not been alone, that we have never been alone, that the Lord was in this place with us even when we did not know it. In the scripture, Jacob will eventually return to Esau with more provisions and family than either could have imagined, and the brothers will reconcile in a way that might not have been possible if Jacob had never left home. I eventually stopped tripping over the stone of my ex-boyfriend and I did, spoiler alert, start seriously dating that tall North Carolina boy and the rest is history. I wonder, though, how this, these small acts of grace have moved and shown up in your life. I wonder how God has shown up in surprising ways for you, perhaps at a time when you were at your most vulnerable or even just your most distracted. I wonder when you have received grace and love that defied logic and rational arguments. I wonder how you have chosen to mark this grace in your life. Perhaps your stone looked like a word of prayer or a text to a friend. Perhaps you chose to go deeper and to make a financial gift to pay it forward or to start to volunteer somewhere. I wonder how you place stones along your path, along your journey, so that one day you might look back and realize that you really have come a long way from that grad school crush or that sibling rivalry, from those sleepless nights of worry or that quagmire of questions about your purpose in life. I wonder how you place stones and mark your journey so that when you look back, you discover again that grace does exist, that God does provide, and that against all odds, we are not alone. We have never been alone. I wonder how you practice trusting that God is with us, here and now, surrounding us each step of the journey. For even when we do not know it, The Lord is in this place. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We try to trust, and so often we struggle. Guide our feet along the journey, so that we might look back and see the stones of grace marking your presence with us, and we might begin to trust again that you will go with us wherever we might travel. Amen.